Welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. Today's episode is on considering the use of proviral DNA genotyping to inform ART choice. Featuring Dr. John Baxter, who is a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Department of Pathology at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University and head of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Cooper University Healthcare in Camden, New Jersey. He'll take us through a case study of a patient with HIV who is treatment experienced with virologic suppression who is asking to simplify their ART regimen. He will discuss the latest data and recommendations on the use of proviral DNA genotyping to inform ART choice in this scenario. This episode is taken from our series on key decisions in HIV care. You can follow along with the slides, which are available in the show notes. Let's get started and listen in to Dr. Baxter. Hi, I'm John Baxter. I'm head of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Cooper University Healthcare, and I'm a professor of medicine at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University in Camden, New Jersey. And today I'll be talking about considering the use of proviral DNA genotyping to inform choice of antiretroviral therapy. So let's discuss a case study. So this patient is treatment experienced. He's virologically suppressed on his current regimen. And he's coming into the office and asking if he can simplify his regimen to a single pill or can he take injectables. His current antiretroviral therapy is etravirine, raltegravir, and FTC-TAP. He has extensive prior treatment exposure, including 3TC and AZT, as well as atazanavir and darunavir. He was also, for a prolonged period of time, on a Favarin's FTC and TDF. And unfortunately, we have limited prior resistance data because he is new to our clinic. His CD4 count is 634. His viral load is undetectable, less than 20. And we do not have a pre-therapy genotype. Other laboratory testing is relatively unremarkable, as you can see here. So the question in this case is, should we do proviral DNA genotyping? A proviral DNA genotype is potentially useful in certain situations. The test itself is referred to as a DNA genotype or an archive genotype. And what it's looking for is evidence of drug resistance mutations in the proviral integrated DNA. And it can be done at any viral load level, including patients who are undetectable, but it's less sensitive than having the cumulative historical RNA genotypes. Concordance between DNA and RNA genotypes varies by study and antiretroviral class and ranges from 26 to 84%. And in one study, 1824, which is the switch study to Elvitegravir, Cobacistata, FTC, and TAF among patients who were virologically suppressed and had a historical 184V or I mutation on a prior resistance assay, that particular mutation was detected on the proviral assay in only 48% of patients who were screened. 
which tells us that this is a fairly specific test, but it's not terribly sensitive. So what do the guidelines recommend about proviral DNA genotyping? Well, they say it can be considered for individuals with a suppressed viral load, particularly if complex or semi-complex pre-existing resistance is suspected. And it may be particularly useful in patients who have extensive treatment history with multiple prior failures and for whom resistance testing is not available. However, results need to be interpreted with caution. So the presence of a particular mutation essentially rules in resistance or rules out susceptibility, but the absence of mutations does not necessarily rule out resistance and does not ensure susceptibility. So back to our patient case, these are the results of his proviral RT resistance genotype. And for the nucleoside class, he had the 41L and the 184V mutations, which would predict resistance to FTC and 3TC. And using the Stanford resistance database interpretation, potentially low-level resistance to abacavir as well. For the NNRTIs, he had the 100I and the K103N mutation detected, and this would cause high-level resistance to most of the non-nucleosides, except possibly deraverine. For the PI and integrase resistance results, he had a number of PI mutations, as you can see here, which would predict high-level resistance or intermediate resistance to most of the PIs. The ones listed here are adesanivir and darunavir. And for integrase, the 97A mutation was detected, and that would be associated with low-level resistance to alvitegravir and raltegravir as predicted by the Stanford database interpretation. So what do the guidelines say about switching patients who are virologically suppressed and have underlying drug resistance? Well, it's recommended that patients with prior drug resistance can be switched to a new regimen based on their treatment history and resistance testing results. And there's limited data on within class switches from one high-resistance barrier drug to another. So for example, dolutegravir to bictegravir, uh, and that I'll describe in the next two studies, the 380 and the BRAVE uh, study. There's limited data on between-class switches from one high-resistance barrier drug to another. Uh, so for example, a boosted PI to bictegravir or a dolutegravir-containing regimen. And data from the, these two studies is supportive and indirectly supportive of uh, superior efficacy of dolutegravir plus a fully active nucleoside compared to a boosted BI plus a fully active NRTI in patients with first-line failure and resistance uh, from the Dawning study. So here's the data from the 380-4030 study looking at virologic outcomes at 48 weeks. And these are patients who had viral suppression on a standard triple 
drug regimen with dolutegravir, who were, who were switched to bigtegravir, FTC, and TAF, or continued on a dolutegravir-based regimen and had documented or suspected nucleoside non-nuc or PI resistance in some of those patients at baseline. And pre-existing resistance to the nucleosides was present in 25% of patients on the bigtegravir arm versus 24% in the dolutegravir-based treatment arm. And what you can see in the figure on the left, the FDA snapshot, is that the virologic responses were comparable for either arm of the study with suppression rates of 91% in the dolutegravir continued uh, regimen versus 93% in the bigtegravir-based uh, switch regimen. And on the right, you can see that the data slightly favors bigtegravir, but it's really not a significant uh, difference. Also, what's interesting is when looking at switch from dolutegravir to bigtegravir by baseline nucleoside resistance, it really didn't have much of an impact if patients had a baseline mutation. So overall, you could see that uh, results were comparable at 48 weeks on either regimen. And what you can also see is patients that had the 65R or three or more TAMs did equally well, as did those with other nucleoside resistance. And whether or not you had the 184V or I mutation, plus minus other mutations, responses were equally good in both arms. So the data here suggests that switching from one high-resistance barrier drug for another may be effective in patients with virologic suppression, even in the setting of underlying resistance. The BRAVE 2020 study data is shown here, and this looked at the impact of baseline resistance on outcomes following a switch to bigtegravir FTC and TAF in black persons with HIV. So it was a randomized open-label study looking at a switch from a baseline regimen, which included two nucleosides and a third agent, to bigtegravir FTC TAF in virologically suppressed individuals. And the nucleoside backbone most commonly was FTC TAF, 67%. And the third agent most commonly was an integrase inhibitor followed by a non-nucleoside. And what you can see is that patients had the 184V or I mutation in a small subset. They also had nucleoside as well as PI resistance. And it was found that the switch to Bictegravir FTC-TAF was not inferior to remaining on the baseline regimen at 24 weeks. And further data has shown that patients with baseline nucleoside resistance remain suppressed on bigtegravir FTC tap at both week 24 and week 72. So the 24-week virologic outcomes are shown here. And what's interesting is that patients that had the 184V or I mutation suppressed equally well on either regimen. So this slide looks at between-class switching in patients with underlying resistance. And what we learned from the switch Merck study is that patients who were switched from a high-resistance barrier drug to a low-resistance barrier drug were more likely to fail 
the new regimen. In this case, it was raltegravir that was uh, patients were switched to, and unfortunately, a number of them failed. Also, when only one accompanying nucleoside is fully active, viral suppression can be maintained with boosted PIs and high resistance barrier integrase inhibitors, such as dolutegravir and bictegravir, but not with low resistance barrier drugs. In patients that have multi-drug resistance, switching from one low resistance barrier drug for another is effective. So for example, switching alvitegravir for raltegravir. However, there's limited data on switching from a boosted PI to a high barrier integrase inhibitor with underlying resistance. And we have some of that data from the BRAVE study. So back to our case study, the question is, can he simplify his antiretroviral regimen to a single tablet or to injectables? His current regimen is etrovirine, raltegravir, FTC, and TAP. His viral load's undetectable. So now that we have his proviral genotype available, we can be pretty confident that his virus is going to be sensitive to integrase inhibitors, at least the second generation uh, drugs, as well as TAF. And even though he does have some underlying nucleoside resistant, we would expect the best option for a single tablet regimen would be BIC, FTC, and TAF. Now, a less favorable option would be dolutegravir, abacavir, and 3TC. And that's because his genotype suggests some potential low-level resistance to abacavir. And between the two, TAP is likely to give us more activity against his virus. Unfavorable options are listed here. You really wouldn't want to use darunavir in this setting because it fired intermediate resistance and potentially even full resistance if you did a phenotype. Likewise, draverine showed some intermediate resistance and would not be your best choice. You also, you wouldn't want to use a first-generation integrase because a drug like elvitegravir has a low barrier to resistance and the interpretation with that single mutation predicted potential low-level resistance. And for a real piverine-based regimen, that would not be recommended because the proviral genotype showed evidence of real piverine resistance. And that would also rule out using cabotegravir in combination with real piverine because it would be contraindicated to use that combination in the setting of resistance to one of those two drugs. So this slide looks at the issue of susceptibility in the setting of TAMS and the 184V mutation. And this is the explanation of why TAF or tenofovir would be a better choice for this patient over abacavir. And so this is a set of data looking at a genotypic and phenotypic pooled data for nucleosides based on the number of TAMS present in the viruses that were studied and looking at susceptibility. So if you look at the first figure for group one, basically, if you have TAMs in the absence of the 184V, you can see that there's increasing resistance to tenofovir. However, if these viruses have the 184 
D or I mutation shown in orange in a background of TAMS, it actually causes hypersusceptibility to tenofovir or restores susceptibility when there are two or three TAMS present. However, for a bacavir, you get the opposite effect. So that as you add in the 184V mutation in combination with TAMS, it ratches up the fold resistance to a bacavir. And in this particular patient, the proviral DNA genotype showed the 184V mutation, and therefore you would expect to get, get less activity out of a bacavir. So what are some of the key take-home points from the presentation? First, for proviral DNA or archive genotype, it can assess resistance at any HIV RNA level, including patients who are undetectable. It should be considered in patients who are virologically suppressed if they have pre-existing resistance that's suspected before switching the antiretroviral regimen. And it's also very useful in patients like the case we discussed that have no prior resistance testing data available or limited resistance data. The other take-home point here is when switching a patient who's virologically suppressed to a new regimen, they can certainly be successfully switched based on the treatment history and results of resistance testing. And it's optimal to have two or preferably three fully active drugs in that new regimen, ideally including an agent that has a high genetic barrier to resistance. You can go online for more clinical care options activities on key decisions in HIV care. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Baxter and thanks to you, the listener. To listen to more episodes in this series and to see slides and webcasts on key decisions in HIV care, see the links in the show notes. Thank you and have a great day.